Good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to be back here again. Uh, before I get into this morning's sermon, uh, which is Psalm 14, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, uh, that's where I'll be preaching from this morning. Uh, I want to let you know that when I read from the New Testament, I've gotten in the habit of reading uh, Lord, all capitals, as Yahweh, the name of God. Uh, because that's the way it was written in the original Hebrew. Anytime you see Lord, all capitals in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, that's where uh, the name, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, was written. And uh, the reason that I do that is because it, his name sig- signifies the importance of his relationship with us. Just as if you saw your doctor at the, the grocery store, and then you were telling someone later, oh, I, I saw Dr. Johnson the other day. That implies, yes, I know who that is. But if you were to say, yeah, I saw Steve at the grocery store, that shows that you have a deeper relationship and connection with the person that you're speaking about. In the same way, God made himself known to his people. He gave himself uh, the name Yahweh, I am, to his people so he could be known uh, and put himself in relationship to them. So uh, when you hear that this morning, don't be surprised. That's just the name that the Lord has given to his people to know him by. Psalm 14, to the choir master of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Yahweh looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon Yahweh? There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of his righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but Yahweh is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When Yahweh restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that you make yourself known to your people, that you communicate, that you have put yourself into relationship with us. And so, Lord, I pray now that you would speak by the power of your word, that you would pour out your spirit in this place, that you would use a broken vessel like myself to communicate your gospel truth, that this would not be uh, my thoughts, this would not be my musings, but that you would communicate your kingdom, your truth, your gospel, and proclaim your glory to your people. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, for those of you here this morning, I'm not sure how many people recall your English lit class from high school, but as a quick recap, there was a book written in 1954 by William Golding, a happy little book, titled Lord of the Flies. It's not happy. It's a joke. It's set during a during the time of an unnamed war 
and a plane that's evacuating children crashes on an isolated island in the Pacific Ocean. And these English boys attempt to govern themselves while they're waiting for help to come and rescue them. Now, this is a gross oversimplification of the book, but basically there are two tribes working together to survive. One tribe led by a a boy named Ralph and one tribe led by a boy named Jack. Together they develop a plan to collect food and find shelter and even work together to create a system of smoke signals so that the tribes can communicate. However, the longer they stay on the island, the boys degenerate. They degenerate into savage attempts to seize power from the other tribe in the process killing boys that were once their friends and classmates. At the end, help finally arrives, but the boys break down weeping as they have looked in the dark mirror and realized the inhumanity in their own hearts. Now, granted, this is a work of fiction, but Golding's novel exposes the darkness inside of the human heart. Culturally, today, we would like to say, well, we're, we're further along than that. We're, we're more advanced. Well, I would never do something like that. Or, you know, at this point, we're on the right side of history. You hear that phrase a good bit lately. Yet as a nation, collectively, we justify murder and abortion as reproductive rights. We justify racism and hatred and call it border security. We justify sexual sin and call it civil rights. Wherever you stand in your own personal worldview, it is the nature of the human heart to trust yourself and no one else. Your heart tells you that you can only trust in yourself, no one else, especially not God. Just like Ralph and Jack, your heart does not find wisdom in itself, but destruction. And in Psalm 14, David speaks to that destruction. David's psalm is pointing out that in your heart there is no wisdom. There is no hope. However, there is hope outside of your heart. And I would suggest that this psalm is communicating that salvation does not come from anything that you can do, but only comes from the Lord. Not by striving to be a better person, not trying to fix your behavior or do the right thing, but it's by confessing these three areas throughout the psalm. First, in verses 1 through 3, a heart of defiance. Secondly, in verses 4 through 6, a heart in danger. And lastly, in verse 7, by confessing a heart for delivery. The first thing that we see is David is exposing this heart of defiance. David writes, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now, when he's speaking of a fool here, he's not speaking of an intellectual fool, someone who's not educated, but he's speaking of a moral fool, someone who embraces perversity and they embrace it aggressively. The fool says that there is no God. This is not a a sense of misguided conviction. Well, they just don't know any better. 
but it's irresponsible defiance. Literally translated, the phrase says, the fool says that God is not. That even if there was some sort of higher power, it's not active. It doesn't do anything. The fool says, God is not. And David writes that in their defiance, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. This is echoed by Paul in Romans chapter 1, where he writes, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. David goes on, Yahweh looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The covenant God of Israel looks down on his people, the people that he, have, he has created, the sons of Adam. And while they are not all described as the fool from chapter, or from verse one, David says that none are found to act with wisdom. They have all turned aside. They have all become corrupt. They have become rotten to the core. Not to be as completely corrupt as they possibly could be, but that every single person is tainted with sin. We see this theme repeated throughout Scripture. The wickedness of the human heart. That's why the Lord brought judgment with the flood as he delivered Noah and his family. Throughout the book of Judges, you see the constant repeated cycle of the people churning from God and doing whatever they feel is best in their own heart. And they, they, they come under oppression and, and the, they, they suffer the consequences of their sin. And again, they turn back to God and cry out, and he delivers them. And then a generation later, they go back. As Israel is sent into exile and taken from their own land, we see this repeated theme throughout the Psalms. We see it throughout all of Scripture, especially uh, Paul uh, repeats this theme throughout Romans. We see the wickedness of the human heart in our own day. You look, you can look to the past century and see the atrocities of the Holocaust and ISIS, what's currently going on in Ukraine. We see the wickedness of the human heart around us daily. Even in our own American history, we see the way that we have dehumanized and treated other people simply because they're different, looking at the Japanese internment camps, the way that African Americans and, and the Latino community have been treated throughout American history. None have been found righteous. All have sinned. And you might say, well, that's, that's not me. 
I mean, I've, I've sinned once or twice or here and there, but, but I'm not as wicked as that. But every person in here at least believes in the concept of total depravity. Otherwise, you wouldn't lock your door when you go home at night. Every person in here at your core, at least believes that there is some wickedness in other people. Even within the church, there's a tendency to reject God. Not outright, because we want to have the good Christian appearance and look like we have it together, but there's a tendency to live as what is referred to as practical atheists. At times, prayer becomes a last resort instead of our first action. We look at community worship as something beautiful and great to be enjoyed, unless we have a better option. You know, maybe we're going on vacation, or, oh, my neighbor got uh, tickets to the uh, to the, the Panthers game this weekend, and, you know, I hate to miss church, but it's a home game. And We even look at Scripture itself as something that we know is good, but we don't often embrace it as much as we say that we love it. In my own life, regardless of what you think, this is a confession for me, I read the Harry Potter books. Some, not everyone did, but I enjoyed them. But when the last book came out, The Deathly Hollows, I remember buying the book at midnight, and I tore through that book, reading it in less than 24 hours, because I didn't want anyone to spoil it for me. But you know what? I don't remember the last time I read scripture with that kind of zeal and fervor. The human heart is naturally inclined to rebellion and self-reliance. You and I are no different. It might not be outright blatant rebellion. You might not be standing there saying God is not. But we often live in a state of self-reliance. But as David says in verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So I want you to consider for a moment, how is your heart turned aside? As you begin to wrestle with the defiance in your own heart, David introduces his next point, a heart in danger. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon Yahweh? Now at first reading, this looks like he's describing enemies of God, people that are just outright set to destroy God and his people, especially focusing on destroying his people. But as you look again, the way he describes them, that they are eating up people as commonly as they eat bread. They don't call upon Yahweh. These are, these are fools in defiance. Going back to verse one, these are the fools that he's talking about. They just have no concern. It's not that they're against God. They just don't care. They don't care about other people. They don't care about uh, other cultures. They don't care about God. They don't care about anything 
but their own destructive appetite. And by not calling upon Yahweh, they're showing their self-reliance, the trust that they have in their own abilities. But David says they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You, speaking to those fools, you would shame the plans of the poor, but Yahweh is his refuge. These fools, these destructive people are in great terror, even if they don't realize it, because they don't see what's coming. They live in defiance as they eat up people and destroy them. They shame the plans of the poor. They rebel, they consume, they destroy, they mock. But God is the God of the righteous. He is with his people and he is their refuge. Sometimes there's refuge in that moment where the Lord delivers his people and takes them out of destruction. There's that immediate reprieve. But even if there is not, there will be justice served eternally as God cares for his people. In Revelation 20, as John describes the defeat of Satan and and being thrown into the lake of fire, standing before the throne of God, all people of all history are being resurrected as death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And as John writes in Revelation 20, 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There will one day be an eternal judgment before the throne of God. Now, I don't say this to to frighten anybody. This isn't uh, one of those churn and burn kind of brimstone sermons. But there is a sense of urgency in our lives as followers of Christ. To the non-believer who might be here this morning, I want you to consider that no one is promised tomorrow. You're not even guaranteed a safe drive home today. If you're not sure where you stand before a holy God, please do not wait, but consider your position. Ask questions. He's big enough to handle it. To the believers here this morning, you and I should have an urgency to share our faith with those around us. You wouldn't leave someone in a burning building to suffer and die. You No one in here would let a child play with poison or power tools. When it comes to the eternity of someone's soul, why is it so difficult to share the gospel? I don't know if you're familiar uh, with this uh, comedy magic combination, but there's a, a, a pair of magicians named Penn and Teller. They're pretty crude. Uh, and one of the, the men, Penn Gillette, is a staunch atheist. But in 2009, he shared in a, a, a video log, a, a vlog, about someone sharing the gospel with him, about this person that cared so much for his soul that he gave Penn, who's, again, a very well-known atheist and outright spoken against God, 
this believer gives Penn a Bible and talked with him about Christ. And Penn says that he respected the believer's courage and respected his standing up for his belief. And in Penn's own words, he says the following. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize, who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that a truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Scripture teaches us that one day there will be a final judgment and that those who live in defiance and self-reliance are going to face the negative consequences of that judgment. Their hearts are in danger. Is yours. Believers, brothers, sisters in Christ, do you have an urgency to share the life-giving gospel to the hearts in danger around you? Lastly, after confessing both a heart of defiance and seeing a heart in danger, we see David pointing to the need for a heart of delivery. After focusing on foolishness, on the foolishness of self-reliance, how your defiance puts your own heart in eternal danger, David is now ending on a hopeful note. He's looking forward to the day of salvation that is to come. David writes, oh, that salvation for Israel that would come out of Zion. When Yahweh restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. He recognizes that salvation can never come come from within. Salvation only comes from outside. And he points to Zion. Physically, this was a holy hill in Jerusalem. But also throughout scripture, it's used as a reference to heaven itself. And he says that when Yahweh restores his people, when salvation comes rolling out of Zion, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. David's examined the human heart and he has found it to be corrupt himself included, myself included, yourself included. You and I are rotten and tainted by the destructive power of sin. There is none who does good, not even one. So salvation can never be a result of human effort. You can't volunteer enough. You can't donate enough. You can't be good enough. You can't give enough away. You can't serve enough. You can't be culturally sensitive or aware enough. You can't fight enough causes. You cannot be on the right side of history as far as salvation is concerned. No. 
Salvation has to come from the outside. And David says, salvation is coming from Zion. And believer, for you and I, we look at Scripture and we look back to the cross and the empty tomb and we see that salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. The Son of God who left the safety of the throne to put on flesh and live in community with his own defiant creation. But he didn't live in defiance. No, he lived in a perfect, holy obedience and yet was condemned by the very people he came to save. And yet as he took your sins to the cross with him, so your sin was nailed to that cross and died with him that day, in his resurrection he gives you his righteousness his holy status so that you and I may be called a holy child of the living God. And so that is why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." Because the defiance in your own heart could never save you, God himself intervenes and steps into creation itself to redeem your defiant heart and rescue you from eternal danger. And so this morning, I want to ask you, I want to challenge you, will your heart continue in self-reliance? Either in blatant outright rebellion, or as a practical atheist? Will you continue living a life of defiance that puts your heart in eternal danger? Or will you confess your sinful heart of defiance, recognizing the urgency of facing a heart without God and receive and rest and the salvation that is found only in the name and the power and the blood of Jesus Christ. Which will you choose? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your goodness to your people. Lord, we confess that far too often we know the right words to say and the the right things to do, but we continue to live depending on ourselves, thinking that if we could just be good enough, maybe you'll love us a little bit more. Lord, we confess our self-reliance. We we confess our arrogance and our pride. And Lord, we confess that we have not loved others as we should. We have not shared your life saving and life-giving gospel as we should. Lord, give us a heart to see the gospel go forward. 
Give us a heart to see your kingdom move and your name be made known. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Renew our minds and transform our hearts by the power of your word. Remind us of what you have saved us from and use us to proclaim your glory everywhere we go and to everyone we meet. Not by the power and glory of of our own ability, but only by the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his holy name we pray. Amen.